Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Dr. Seth Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is a professional lecturer in the Paul H. Hitz School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. He's a senior advisor for the Institute of Integrated Transitions and a consultant to organizations such as the World Bank, USAID, State Department, and OECD. Dr. Kaplan, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my honor to be with you. Thank you for inviting all right, so guys, today we're going to be discussing uh, two particular opinion pieces that Dr. Kaplan wrote for the Heterodox Academy. So I'm just going to give you guys the names of the two opinion pieces. They were both, the first one was Religion of Viewpoint Diversity Blind Spot. That was in June 2018. And the next one was something that uh, Dr. Kaplan wrote recently. It was called Knowledge and Religious Belief, How Secular Assumptions Can Sideline heterodox viewpoints and this was written in july 2021 now as you guys know this is the charvak podcast and when when it comes to heterodox viewpoints uh charvak uh, was one of the darshanas in india that was a heterodox darshan so i i immediately got uh, attracted to this uh, this particular essay especially the second one about knowledge and religious belief so dr kaplan i actually wanted to start uh with this premise uh why do you think religion or the religious point of view has been uh, i don't know if sidelined is the right word sidelined. because i, don't, I, I yeah, um in in the academia in general uh, and I, I don't think so this is a, a particular trend in the west because i think it has now become a sort of a universal trend uh, across the globe so why do you think that has happened um i i think it's clear if you look at um the history of uh, intellectual thought in the West, that um, the, the Enlightenment, particularly the latter Enlightenment, I think the early part of the Enlightenment was somewhat different. But the latter Enlightenment, uh, which you can think um, 18th century uh, France and elsewhere in Europe, uh, took on a very anti-religious tone or flavor Part of that was in reaction to the fact that uh, the church or the religious authorities in Europe, I mean, the Catholic Church most notably, but not only the Catholic Church, um, was not open to uh, new viewpoints. And to a certain extent, Enlightenment thought therefore became um, it, it, it was it was almost like you had to be anti-religious to promote advancement of knowledge. And then this became somehow the underlying uh, belief system, I would say, uh, be, uh, underneath a lot of the knowledge production. It, didn't, it, it, it took a long time to reach the state we're in now where it's literally anti-religious, but it was always there. But it's and it was especially a dominant part, I would say, post-1960s. If you went back before 1960s, you could find some very prominent religious intellectuals that were based in universities. Today, it's almost impossible. There's a couple of exceptions, like a Robert George of Princeton, uh, but there's not a lot of those people. So I would say the whole source of this is simply the way the Enlightenment thought developed and how it eventually pervaded all intellectuals with the university being at the center of it. All right. So, Dr. Kaplan, that actually takes me to a uh, to the next question that I always had. And I, in fact, even did a monologue on this, that there's this standard demarcation about, you know, 
X side is an orthodoxy and the Y side is a heterodoxy. Now, the classical assumption has always been because we've been raised into in a society and in a culture that was very religious. Now, in that scenario, obviously, usually the orthodoxy was always Assum uh, you know, the assumption was that the religious people or the religious uh, groups were always the orthodoxy. And there was this enlightenment uh, scholarship that was the heterodoxy that was challenging the orthodoxy. But I've always found this to be, I don't know, as maybe as someone who sits outside and observes what's happening in the West as an outsider. Uh, sometimes I feel that orthodoxy and heterodoxy maybe are force-fitted into the religious and the irreligious groups uh, and it may not be the case every time because as as one can see now the way academia has kind of transformed now that i think now the irreligious have in a way become the orthodoxy and the religious yes. are the heterodoxy now so don't you think we should be a little more flexible in how we define the orthodoxy and heterodoxy considering our current realities for sure i mean a different way to think about it is a group that is dominant um, will try to push out competing or heterodoxic ideas, and a group that's in the minority will, by its nature, be more promoter, more of a promoter of heterodoxy thoughts, and more of um, would just be more i more of an idea entrepreneur, more entrepreneur with ideas, more willing to challenge assumptions. So if you if you think of it that way and get away from the religious versus secular, you can see that when religion was so dominant, and I would say this is especially true when religion is dominant and it's very vertical, very hierarchical. I mean, you can think of this with the most extreme being the Catholic Church, but you can find other religions that are very vertical and therefore power is centralized. In that case, for sure, religion would say, this is the orthodoxy and everything that's against it is wrong or, or on the margins. And today, when you go to a university or actually you go to the West in general, and I don't think this is specific to the university because I think most elites in the West now have a set of values which are secular, and to a certain extent, anti-religious depends upon who you're talking to. But because they become so secular, now that is the dominant norm or dominant way of thinking. And religion, by definition, becomes marginal, heterodoxic, opposed. So I think it's best to not think of it as religious versus secular, but it's something to do with the power dynamics and the nature of how that power is used. Now, that, that's a very interesting scenario, which leads us to, and this is something that you actually touch upon in, in some detail uh, in, in your uh, essay, and where you talk about things that, for something that is so integral to our life, like religion, uh, I've always said this now, obviously, I'm a charvak, like, I'm a disbeliever myself, but yes. um, now, I always say this, and I have a, you know, to, to very much to the anger of my fellow disbelievers uh, inside and outside uh, India. I mean, I have friends in the West too. And I always had this theory that, you know, disbelief started with, okay, you might believe in XYZ, leave me the hell alone. Then, you know, when the religious people became more tolerant of this point of view, the, the disbelievers were like, okay, now they are tolerant. 
let me push a little more and then we reach new atheism new atheism comes with obviously the four horsemen and and a very robust and a very aggressive you know response to religion which is religion is a mind virus you know we need to throw the baby out with the bath water and once the baby is thrown out with the bath water there is an empty space and then secular humanism or nowadays whatever is coming through maybe some post structural or post modern thoughts they're trying to fill in the you know the gap created but still a huge swath of the world even america yeah i know polls say that you know 25% or 30% of americans now have lost their religion 50% of europe has lost their religions but i was looking at some pew poll data and some other data that even within those groups it's not like they're absolute skeptics they believe in new age beliefs like yes. i was shocked to see how many disbelievers have new age beliefs like uh, energy and some even believe in some weird sort of woo woo but but the point is that society is still by and large very religious but we are trying to push society in in a very different directions so how do we make this point like i whenever i try to make this point to my fellow disbelievers that look we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater i don't know if that's the right thing we need to hold on maybe push the brakes a little and listen to the religious point of view because even if we don't like it most of the things that we do in our lives like most people don't want to accept it like i asked my friends why is sunday a holiday you might say now the government has decided it but sunday started to be a holiday because it was the day of the sabbath it was a religious idea that now has been kind of disengaged from its religious roots and now everybody just says and sunday is even in india we have sunday as a holiday by the way and it's not a christian country yeah so first uh for the sake of transparency i am not a disbeliever and we can discuss that i come from a, a secular home and decided relatively early in my well not when i was a child but when i was in my late 20s that religion was better for me for my family when i would get married and better for society and since i'm not a hypocrite or i try not to be a hypocrite i i mean i jewish so i my being jewish is a little bit different than being christian surely be different than being muslim being hindu and so i made a conscious choice um to become religious become what we would call orthodox and um i can discuss why but i i think um i think um i mean the thing is the human the you me people we are ingrained we are deeply spiritual all humans are deeply spiritual we cannot live and be healthy as people without somehow satisfying this some some sort of spiritual yearning uh what what institutionalized religion does is funnel it structure it um i mean for believers obviously it's it, it it's true i mean there is a revelation but even if you look at it from a scientific or a social scientific perspective there's um the value of religion comes across in so many scientific studies you can read like rob putnam if you're familiar with rob putnam has a book called american grace just as an example and he compares believers to non-believers and actually it's not the belief that matters it's the regular attendance in a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple and it's so you can actually disbelieve and go and believe and not go it's those that go every week they they accept certain norms their their attitudes change they become more generous they volunteer more 
they they give more money. So there's all these things that you can find about religion being a positive influence. So I, I would just say, in terms of this debate, it's a bit of a, for me, a, an artificial or a, not a real debate, whether we're religious or not religious. We are all spiritual. To deny the spirituality of humans is to somehow deny reality. I mean, you can find studies, books, or just be among people, see people, travel to many countries and see the way people are. Uh, of course, if you want to stay in your in your office in Oxford or whatever you may be in a university, you could really think that people are not spiritual, but I would say that's certainly not the case. So given the spirituality, the question is, what's the value of religion versus no religion? And I look at the West right now, and I look at like polarization and the political tribalism, and I wonder how much of that is a product of our of of some of our uh, lack of lack of st structured religion. I mean, obviously, there's other factors, but when we stop training children, for example, to be virtuous, and we stop uh, um, socializing uh, people in certain norms and values about how we treat each other, eventually that filters through to the whole society and to our politics. And so far, the results aren't great. So I, so I, I mean, this. So I, I think it's a question if you want to be without religion. And I certainly think on an individual basis, we are we are capable as individuals to being not religious and having an intellectual journey, which can do everything, if not more than a typical person can do in religion. The question is, can you reproduce that at scale? And I am highly skeptical without structured, institutionalized religion, whether you can create the same benefits of religion in populations that are millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And I think there's no evidence historically that that's the case. And I'll just say one more point. And if you look, for example, I mean, I think one of the main critiques of religion is that it causes violence, it causes divisions. Uh, but, and I think that's true, one of the reasons the Enlightenment became anti-religious is not only the fact that the church was, was um, against new knowledge or against new ideas, but also Europe had wars of religion, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century. I mean, tens of millions of people died. But if I look at the 20th century, what were the biggest causes of killing in the 20th century? Well, you have the fascists. You have the communists, you have the Maoists, um, and none of these groups are religious. They're all anti-religious. And I look at the some of the issues in the world today. I look at the I looked at Rwanda in 1994 uh, with the genocide. I look at what China is doing to the Uyghurs. Um, none of these groups are. None of this is because of religion. So I, I think we 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 need to think of religion as simply one element of many elements. And um, it's very wrong to have simplistic ideas about anything. That's how I look at things. And you have to see the, see the nuance and see the context. And um, it's all about what mechanisms will have a, the largest impact on people and can they be funneled in a constructive way. So 
uh, I always uh, use this, uh, I don't know, story or thought experiment with my friends. Not that I came up with something like this. It's been done by uh, atheists to criticize religion. But I actually use this to actually stand up for religion in a very weird way. So I always use this thought experiment with my you know, skeptic friends. And I say, okay, let's imagine this. You know, there is a big nuclear holocaust and most of humanity is wiped out. But we just have one set of comic books, The Avengers, that is safe for some odd reason. And you know, 500, 600 years down the line, some set of homo sapiens that are left miraculously after the nuclear holocaust, they suddenly come across those Avenger books. And over the period of time, some of those uh, people, uh, they start believing those, uh, you know, the, whether it's the Incredible Hulk or Thor or whatever, all those DC and Marvel comics characters, they start thinking they're gods. And the immediate response of my disbelieving friends is like, see, I told you religion is fake, but my whole point to them every time is, see, the religious condition is the most natural condition because every time you yes. reset humanity, they go back to it. So why, when, so where is this gap, Dr. Kaplan? Why, why are we not able to make people understand that, like you said, right, rightfully so that, look, religion also has certain bad elements in it. Now, why can't we explain to people that the religious condition actually is the most natural condition for a post-agricultural society. And what we need to work at is how do we keep that loose structure, which uh, I don't know, that suprasensory mode, as they say. I mean, I think it was Pascal Bouillet who came up with the suprasensory mode. And he said that, you know, religion gives you that kind of a sense of larger than life, that sense of community. So how do we keep that and we remove all the bad elements in it? So, so where have we failed, in your view, in, in even inside academia, to maintain that balance? I mean, the, this is the challenge of ideology. Um, and we see it within religion, we see it outside of religion, is that uh, when people become embedded, and it's just natural, um, in a certain ideological framing of issues, uh, it's very hard. It's very hard to reach them. So I, I'm not optimistic that you can uh, make a large change. But I think fundamentally, uh, heterodoxic thinking is something that, it, and that's the whole point of that heterodox academy, is that it's something that needs to be intentionally nurtured. It can be nurtured in youth. I mean, my children go to religious schools. It doesn't mean I'm not taking them to see the world. I hope to take them to India when they get to the right age. The point is you, I mean, as a parent, you can do that. And as institutions, we should do that. Uh, and for me, if at least from a religious perspective, if you're deeply grounded in your faith, you can be open to the world and there's no contradiction. It's a question of being deeply grounded and having that mindset early on. And my, my favorite people, and one of the reasons I became religious, and there were many reasons, but one is that I saw people that were deeply religious and deeply open. And those are my favorite people. And I said, I wanted to be like one of those people. And um, But for the people coming from secular or, or a different ideological framing, the only way to do it is to intentionally, we talk about diversity. Diversity has become an obsession in Western institutions. Yet when we talk about diversity, we don't talk about uh, viewpoint diversity. We don't talk about religious diversity. So in the same way we wonder or we worry about gender diversity or ethnic diversity, we ought to be uh, including in 
um, in our groups, in our institutions, space for religious diversity, meaning not, not um, different religions, but different levels of belief, as well as different religions. Right now, it might mean different identities. I think we would have to be systematic about being open to including in academia, in universities, while we, we, we emphasize the secular, we need to emphasize heterodox thinking by incorporating religious people. And then we need to think about what it means in terms of our human resource policies and everything about what we teach. Because to be honest, the secular framing is as ideological as we critique the religious framing. And in reality, as you pointed out before, because the secular framing has become so dominant, it becomes a power that wants to marginalize the, the alternative, which is a more religious, or there are other alternatives. I just think religion is the most prominent. It's not the only. In the same way, if we, want, if we really believe in diversity, if we really believe in, in chasing knowledge and pursuing knowledge, we must be equally open to including religion, different religions, different types of beliefs. Obviously, there's always some things beyond the pale, um, as we would say, if that if that translates to Indian English, beyond the pale, uh, beyond what's reasonable, uh, we're not going to include someone who believes in human sacrifice or something like that. There's always things you can point out, but um, being an evangelical Christian, a very religious Christian or a very religious Catholic or something like that in the United States, it's really hard to find such people, white evangelical Christians in universities are probably the most marginalized today, more marginalized than ethnic or racial minorities. So I, I think if we're true to our own beliefs, if you want to make change, you have to use the language of diversity, use the words that we speak in terms of being inclusive and simply translate it and then incorporate it across these institutions to in, make sure that we intentionally include religious believers. I, and if we don't do that, we are we are quite the hypocrites because we we say we believe in these things, but we actually typically only mean these things for some groups. We don't mean these things for all groups, which by definition is is um, we're failing our own values, to be quite honest, if we believe in these values. So, Dr. Kaplan, again, as someone now, I don't come from uh, any of the three big uh, monotheistic faiths. Uh, I come from a Hindu background and my upbringing and my, my societal experience is actually fundamentally different maybe from the, uh, from people who come from the three main key monotheistic faiths. Now, here's my question. I, this is as an outsider observing what is happening in Western society. Do you think this problem becomes exceptionally aggravated in maybe an Abrahamic template where like, I come from a Hindu background and I come from a society where plurality was a very normal and yeah. default condition. So it's like, you know, when you have, there is only one God, there is only one book and there is this exclusivity default position, exclusivity, even in the real. And sometimes when I look at secularism, how it has come up in the West, it has almost as if I remove the God but I kept the exclusivism template. Yes. So even when I became secular, 
my behavioral traits were just like my past predecessors. Now, where I come from, so I'll give you an example. Let's say the philosophy of Anekantvad in Jainism, where we have the seven steps, where it could be maybe this, maybe that, maybe this and that. It's not moral relativism. Uh, eventually, Mahavira does say there is an objective truth, but it's kind of hard to reach to that objective truth. And, and my experience of living in India is that this, this battle between religion and science like recently there was you know there's these photos of uh, interns in nasa and it was very unique where the two indian girls or the two hindu girls who were you know who were put there they had the photos of goddesses behind behind them on their computer desk where they were working and all the other interns did not have a single photo or, or nothing else but they had their their faith they were showcasing their faith as if it's very normal and when they do their scientific work what they believe there does not happen. In, in a very weird way, I somehow feel like, uh, uh, was, was it Stephen Jay Gould's non-overlapping magisteria? Uh, as if the Hindus kind of have imbibed the noma on a daily basis and they live their life on the basis of a noma. Do you think having that noma is kind of hard when you work in an Abrahamic template where there is exclusivism? Well, um, first, if you look globally, Hinduism is surely one of the, most important religions in the world. Um, the number of believers or followers is, is, must be over a billion. So it, it, we, 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 we should just take the Abrahamic faiths and Hinduism and not include them on the, same, on the same level, if I may just say that. And if you walk around India, and I haven't spent nearly as much time in your country as I would like, but it's really hard to walk down, let's say, uh, a streets in Mumbai and not feel the diversity. Um, being a person who is uh, uh, follows my nose, so to speak, and I'm very curious. And I walk, I walk in and out of every every place, and it's so clear that you have one temple here. You have, besides the density of temples, the diversity between the temples are it's very very hard not to feel. And just the spiritualism in terms of the act, the active, the, the just the, the things going on that are spiritual street by street, it's astounding and hard to miss. And it's hard to find it in much else anywhere in the world. So India is very unique. I would say if you went to Africa, also incredibly spiritual. It's not as clear on the street. Um, so and certainly there's other places uh, like that. But so India is very unique. In terms of your question about the Abrahamic faiths, so first of all, I'm Jewish. So Judaism is somewhat different than it's the two religions that were outgrowths of Judaism. Not that Christianity or Muslims will always define themselves as outgrowths of Judaism, but from our perspective, they are they're outgrowths of Judaism and they have elements of Judaism in them as, and they went off in different directions, of course. And they both are world, great world religions with uh, huge numbers of believers um, in their own histories and their own traditions. But the thing that's somewhat different between Judaism and those religions is that Christianity is a religion uh, that with universal aspirations, and Islam is a religion with universal aspirations. It embedded in their beliefs as well as their language is the idea that everybody um, should be a believer. And if you're not a believer, you are people that need to be converted to the belief. And certainly, if you look at Western 
whether it's um, colonialism wasn't unique to the West, but the idea that we are spreading some sort of enlightenment to people and that we're here to convert people and the missionary element of, of uh, Western colonialism, I think that was somewhat different. Um, I can't say colonialism was, was unique to the West because you see colonialism, if you look in the history of the world, everything that you could say was people being conquered was obviously some form of colonialism or something like that. But the point was this missionary element. And when you see Western human rights organizations today with their deep insistence that people need to do this and this and this. And I have a strong, I wrote a book actually on what were the core human rights that, that were truly universal, that would be universal in China and Africa and Middle East. And there's a few of them, thou shall not kill and some due process of law. There are a few of them that I think if we all came together, we would all agree. Yet the human rights organizations have a long list of many others, some of them of which we have no universal consensus, and they are still functioning as missionary organizations. And so from what you say, I think it's completely true that this, this element of this universalism has infused Western society. And now to some degree, it, it works against promoting heterodox thinking in, univers in universities. But I don't think, back to your original question, that it, it's by definition part of the Abrahamic, Abrahamic tradition because Judaism, our beliefs are is that there are these universal minimal standards, but we are not here to convert. It's actually, it's possible, but it's very hard to be converted to Judaism. Uh, we consider ourselves one nation of many nations. And if you look at the Torah or the Old Testament, the Bible, and you read it and you read our books, uh, the ideas of, of what it means to believe in one God, it's, it's, it's completely different. So I don't think it's, it's innate to the idea that you have to be, if you're monotheistic or you believe in one of these faiths, especially my faith, is that you have to have this exclusionary vision. My faith, by definition, assumes we are we, you are you, we have our beliefs, you have your beliefs. Yes, there's some minimal what we call this. There's actually, in the, if, you, if you looked at the Old Testament, you would look after Noah, the Noah's, Noah and the flood, and after he... He, the, the, after the flood was over, there's a section which is considered seven laws, the seven laws of Noah that apply universally. Um, and But basically, uh, the, all the laws that follow and all the history that follows were are unique to the Jewish people. So I, I do not think you have to be exclusive and monotheistic. I think the two main monotheistic religions are that way, but I don't think it's necessarily a function of their monotheism. It's a nature of their universal aspirations of either their founders or the institutions that evolved up in the early years of their history. Yet, so actually, I actually agree with you. And in fact, I would say that this, this problem now that the world is facing in terms of viewpoint diversity is, is uniquely because of the way, as you've observed, uh, maybe Christianity and Islam are set up uh, in their current avatar where there is this expansionist streak and the expansionist streak along with yes. the exclusivist streak. And sometimes I, I almost feel as if I, I clearly remember when a, a few years ago when I was reading Peter Bogosian, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I, 
as a humble student of philosophy, I was trying to read different books written by different people. And Peter Bogosian is a professor of philosophy. So I, I remember reading his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. And I was just sitting there in my corner after I, you know, I, I was done with the book. I said, why would an atheist want to write a book uh, like a manual for creating atheists? That is such a, that is such a, I don't know, Christian is thing to do, but I need to go out there. I need to save you. And it's almost as if the, you know, the atheist now wants to save you from Christianity yes. Yes. and all those religions. And I was like, this is just, this is just Christianity without the God. And, it, it's, and it's in the DNA of Western society. I mean, Islamic society is, is different. And to be honest, I, when I, when I was in Pakistan, I can recall because Pakistan's a, a little bit more on the edge of the Islamic world, people tried to convert me. When I've been in Africa and elsewhere, people have tried to convert me to Christianity. I mean, it's simply, it's in the DNA. And, and, it's, um, and so even if people are no longer religious, this idea that they are saviors of other people, it just, it's just, it's just, it, it, for me, it's, uh, I mean, even the fact that our political uh, tribalism. I think it's partly because people are not religious, so po politics have replaced religion to some extent, as has sports teams and so on and so forth. But the fact that they feel that those who don't have their beliefs are somehow unenlightened and somehow they're ignorant, and this is especially true for the more on the left than the right, because the right is more in the minority. But this whole idea is that we need to convert you, that you're unenlightened, that something is wrong with you if you don't accept our beliefs, you're ignorant. You're, I mean, honestly, now it gets to the point that you might be racist if you don't agree with our viewpoints. I think all of this is just, you could, you could argue, it traces back to something in the culture that went back to Christianity. Of course, you could always ask, was that somehow in the culture before there was Christianity? I have no idea. Can you find some of this in Greek in the Greek thinking that predated Christianity. I mean, where does it come from? I mean, we at this point in time, it seems to come from the Christian universalism, but could we argue that some of this is embedded in some Greek thinking about abstract universal ideas that predates Christianity? And I cannot answer that because obviously it's very hard to entangle historical and cultural forces that shape where we are today. Yeah, it, it, it's a unique phenomenon and uh, something that was written, uh, again, uh, this was written by an Indian-American thinker, Rajiv Malhotra, where he had said that there are two distinct worldviews. There's a Christo-Islamic worldview and then there is, I, I would put the, the Jewish worldview very similar in that sense to the Hindu worldview, where uh, on one side, I think the Christo-Islamic worldview can give you tolerance and while on the other side, when I talk about the Jewish worldview or the Hindu worldview, that obsesses on mutual respect or equal respect. As yes. in, uh, you can do your thing, I can do my thing. I mean, I, I, I clearly remember when Mr. Malhotra had said this. It's like, don't you think tolerance is the most condescending thing you can do to someone? As if, you know, you're sitting on the dining table and you tell someone, I'm tolerating you on the dining table because I obviously <laughs> don't agree with you. But let me tolerate you and let me have a nice meal with you. I said, that's so condescending. What we actually should not aspire for tolerance. We should aspire for mutual respect. We, we don't have to agree with each other, but we should respect that. So now to come on viewpoint diversity, Dr. Kaplan, so how do we maybe, so if I was to ask, Okay, we have identified the problem. There is no viewpoint diversity. So how do we fix this problem then? 
Um, again, I think it goes back, um, and I mean, and you're true. I mean, there are cultures and this idea of tolerance, I mean, even this idea of dialogue. Um, when we say dialogue, and you can look at interfaith uh, uh, dialogue, or you could talk about dialogue between secular and religious, um, I think there's often the problem is that you're, um, you're, you're, unless you're accepting the fact that somebody can have completely different beliefs and completely disagree with you, and you're bringing people who are not on the weak side, so we say, but people who are more on the extreme side, not that extreme, I don't mean extreme in terms of a negative, but people who are very firm and very clear in their beliefs and are not going to change their beliefs. And if you want to have a proper dialogue, you want to have a proper anything, you have to bring those people together. You can't be asking people to drop, to, to, to somehow have weakened their beliefs to participate in the dialogue. And too much of this, this type of interfaith or secular religious dialogue is not between true believers. And if you have true believers together, you have to have a, a high, it's not about tolerance anymore. It's about, you use the term respect. I would just say it's, if you have true, if you truly believe in another person's dignity, you have to be able to accept them with their beliefs. Obviously, as I said before, there's some sort of minimal, not maximum, some sort of minimal standard that and beyond that standard I do not I would not accept people who wouldn't let women go to school for example and uh, don't believe in um, and have and have beliefs uh, against like due process there's certain things that I would not consider acceptable for me I have some minimal standards we never want to give up our minimal standards tolerance gives you the idea that either um, I don't really care that you might have completely different beliefs. You have to you have to sort of be somewhat close to me, or that there's no standards at all. And I'm against. I think people should should be strong in their belief, and we we should respect them and give them dignity. At the same time, it's crucial that we have at least some minimal standards. So going back to your question of how, and I don't want to. I, I'm sorry if that was a bit of a tangent, but the how it has to go back to how we race youth. And I, I think, uh, at least in the West, one of the great problems about how we raise youth today is we do not expose them to heterodox beliefs. We pamper them too much. We spoil them too much. We overmanage their time. They're not risk-taking. They're not, they're too easy to be hurt. When I hear about what goes on with people being upset by language, and upset by debates, it's almost laughable. I mean, if you for better or worse, you come into my house and there's arguments at least a few every hour in my house. It's simply it's it's I uh, it's tiresome, and I, I my children I wish they were a little bit easier to deal with sometimes, but it's somehow it's in their blood to disagree, and we're just constantly disagreeing, and because we keep as you said the Sabbath, we keep the 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 the, the Jewish Sabbath. There's a day when there's no schedule and they get to go crazy. And I don't know how that will affect them as they get older. But certainly if you want children uh, and the next generation to be heterodoxic in their thinking, they need to get out of their special neighborhoods where everybody thinks like them. They have to have some free roaming time. They have to have time where they make mistakes and take risks 
and get used to the idea that they they can be wrong and that they also have flaws and that and you have to bring people together and have them have debates and disagreements and expose to expose them that could be some sort of civic uh, education but for me actually the best education is this just day to day not so institutionalized but day to day experience of, of simply going different places, meeting different people, reading different things, get out of your bubble. Uh, that's a bubble not only of ideas, but it's a bubble of, of lack of risk. We are raising our children too comfortable and they don't have a chance to make mistakes. They don't have a chance to understand that, that they're wrong sometimes and that people will have, uh, people will disagree and, and you have to just meet lots of people and have time to get out there and stop having risk-free youth and over-scheduled youth. And then when you get to the university, the university, I mean, there's this thing, um, um, uh, um, uh, John, Jonathan Haidt and then the Heterodox Academy, they've actually evaluated schools on how much they're truth-seeking versus social justice-seeking. For sure. I mean, for me, I mean, I would never send my children to a school that wasn't truth-seeking. If we're truly truth-seeking, there will be in the DNA of institutions this idea that, that different backgrounds and different ideas, they can all contribute. When we are ideologically driven, which could be religious, could be new religions like social justice, whatever you want to call them, it could be the religion of atheism. Sorry to push back on that, but the religion of atheism, whatever it is, if we are fixated on certain ideas, we are no longer truth seeking. So, I mean, the idea of all learning, I mean, I mean, I obviously, my kids spend half their day learning religion, half the day learning secular subjects. But, but even in our religion, that religion is geared towards what we would consider truth seeking. So it's built into their idea that when they engage with other subjects, they are truth-seeking. And that, by definition, should, again, it depends on the family, it depends on the community, and I chose a certain community where I knew they would be open to different ideas, is this idea that they can appreciate music, literature, uh, different cultures, and yet still be grounded in their religion. It's the same thing in university. You can be grounded in your values, whatever those values are, but you need to taste, experience, be open, and not find the fence with people who think and believe things very differently. But I would think it really goes back to the way we raise our children. If you can't raise your children uh, to be able to take risks, have failure, have pushback, uh, have, be able to engage lots of people and be open to them, then you're actually raising your children to be intolerant is how I would look at it. So, Dr. Kaplan, would it be fair to say that the Western society right now is going through a weird phase where because of the tremendous progress, not just scientific, but material progress in terms of prosperity till the extent that the average income, I mean, I live in a country where the average income is what? $2,500 to $3,000 and uh, you're living in a country which is like, six. if I remember correctly, it's around $60,000. Yeah, and, and, and it's almost as if... Uh, the youth in America has run out of aggression. So they came up with microaggressions because they're <laughs> simulating 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else to say it because I um, sit over here in India. I have family in America, right? So I can't ignore North America. I mean, like, wife's a Canadian, brother lives in America. And I just sit here and I observe what's happening in the schools. And, and or sometimes I just look at the American youth and I'm like, they're simulating pain. Like, it's missing in them. And they're trying to simulate pain and they're trying to outrage about things that would not even occur in the top 100 of my problems in my life. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it. Like, I got real things to deal with. <laughs> I don't know how to put it any, <laughs> any other way. Like, that's a real problem for me. And when they, they, they're like microaggression, and I could not understand it. And also, in a very weird way, they're, they, they're just going towards religion. It's a religious condition. Again, they're finding a new religion in, in exactly the old format where, you know, uh, maybe there was the original sin then and now privilege is the original sin. And then the, there is there are purity and pollution tests in the old religion. There are purity and pollution tests in the new religion as if how, how anti-racist are you or how anti-this are you or how anti-that are you. <laughs> it's just the same way. But in a scenario like that, how does heterodoxy survive then? Um, well, first of all, America is a big country, and um, and we should just uh, be careful to always understand the same way I would not view India in the way it's perceived in the media. Uh, I mean, if, and, and there's so much diversity. If I was in Kerala, and then the next day I was in UP, Absolutely. you would think you were in completely different worlds. It's hard to believe these are the same country. Um, or if I was up in... Um, the Northeast, uh, some of the what, what what we would call the tribal areas, uh, as opposed to Mumbai. I mean, the, the contrasts in India are very hard to find in other countries. But the United States is 320 million people. And so there's great diversity. And every place is different. And every school is different. But I think to some degree, what you're touching upon is what we what I don't know if you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh -huh. And to some extent, as you get um, it seems clear that when people have their basic needs satisfied and they get higher up on this needs, they seem to, I, I, they, there seems to be this idea that people, people search for things that are innate, they, they have this innate desire to search for things and innate desire to have a sense of belonging and this innate desire. By nature, I think human nature is that they want to belong and by definition that means that some people don't belong. And you have this some sort of dynamic, and 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 when you're and 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 then when you get these, you have to somehow aspire to something. And we're no longer worried about food, and we're no longer worried about um, about uh, just the daily survival. It's amazing where people go, and so I think it's. And so I think what you say is correct. Um, I mean, but I would also I would also want to be an optimist. I mean, democracies do have self-correcting. Uh, mechanisms in them. Uh, the United States has gone through, you look at the history of the United States, I mean, we've been following this this constitution, our second constitution since uh, the late 18th century, and we've had waves of polarization. We've had, we've had periods of great tumult. I mean, you could think of, if you are study of American history, the 1960s and 70s, but you can also look back to um, the progressive era, which is the late 19th century, you can look at pre-Civil War, you can look back to period after the after the founding of the country, and you can find others. I mean, I can find five, six, seven eras 
where you had periods of polarization and great disputes. And so, so when we look at what goes on now, we must always have a very strong historical perspective and not assume that the world is coming to an end. And so I, I like to be optimistic, but I do think it is true. And I think the, the main difference, which I think is our, our, the reason why this period is different than all previous periods is the nature of the media and how the media has changed and how the media is, is literally driving conversations and forcing people into certain beliefs and certain tendencies, which are very negative. So the way I would look at it is that, uh, yes, Americans, the materialism has had some very negative um, uh, people. People just they're not risk taking. They have it too easy. Um, so I buy all that. And I and I and I try hard that my children won't have it too easy. And they're not very happy about it sometimes. But but it's very hard because they throw food away every day. And I when I was a child, we didn't throw food away. They throw food away every day. They don't like doing too much homework. We try the best we can and we give them whatever rewards to get it done. So I think I think everything you say is important, but I do think hopefully there's a correction here. And But I also think we have to focus on media change. We have to focus on school change. All of these things are essential. And to the extent that we don't undertake them, we will, we will, we will have problems as you worry about in the future. Um, um, but I, I want to be an optimist and I want to believe that there will be correction here. And I want to believe whatever the, the craziness, if you want to call it that, that exists today, five years or 10 years will go by and it won't be, it, it won't be, it won't exist anymore. We had a period of McCarthyism, McCarthyism if you know about McCarthyism yeah. in the 1950s, and there was yeah. hysteria about communists and, and people were losing their jobs in Hollywood and people were losing their jobs in companies and all of that stuff. And to some degree, we have some of this now. The difference, I think, is the media and the role of the media. And we just need to stay true to our values. And we need to believe that this this wave will pass and we will learn from it. Um, so I can see the reasons for pessimism. And I have many friends that are pessimistic. But I... Um, I will stay an optimist because I've seen the history and I believe that we have self-correcting tools. We just have to use the tools. And I could I could give you many nonprofits or things like Heterodox Academy. People start organizations, people launch initiatives, people, I mean, whether it's lawsuits or gatherings or um, or, or mechanisms to try to change universities. There's a lot of things going on and we have to hope that these things will lead to better outcomes. I'm sure it won't be ideal. We're a very messy country with a lot of things that work and don't work at the same time. But that's the nature of, of America, the nature of democracy, where because things are so open, things always seem very bad. And But I have to be optimistic that things will pass and some of this stuff will not last or stay in the schools forever. I, I, I have to think there will, there will be a correction at some point in time. Oh, well, I'm glad because I'm I'm in the same boat. I'm actually, or in general, I'm an optimist when it comes to these things. So, so Dr. Kaplan, before we wrap things up, is there any new project or any new book that you're working on that you would like to tell us about? Yes, I'll tell you that um, uh, people who know my work 
don't know my work for this issues that we've discussed. They know my work because I work on fragile states. I work on political transitions. I work on conflict um, prevention. And the thing that always, always grabs my attention that I always focus on is this idea of how society works. It's come up a few times in our conversation. I am, whatever it is, I'm obsessed by the nature of societies and the differences and, and the norms and the institutions and how they affect society. So I have a book that I'm working on that takes my lens of examining societies all over the world. And I'm focusing on the United States. And the main argument I'm making is people keep asking me, is the United States a fragile state? Because I'm an expert on fragile states. Look what goes on in our country. Look at what happened with the election. Look what's happened with our polarization. And the way I look at it is, the United States has some problems, but on the whole, we are not a fragile state. We have such strong institutions. We have so many layers of institutions. We have such dynamic companies. We didn't do great in the pandemic, but we have such great pharmaceutical companies in our private sector. And uh, we adapted, we managed, we came out of it um, relatively strong. And uh, so on a, on a national level, we're doing, we're doing okay. We're not great, but we're doing pretty good. We should be confident. On the other hand, we have a lot of fragile neighborhoods. And my book is focused on the fragile neighborhoods across the United States where they're fragile because maybe they're uh, disconnected from opportunity or they have what I would call social breakdown in the neighborhoods. Uh, but we also have some very well-off neighborhoods where we have alienation and anomie and suicide levels that are very high and drug abuse. And the question is, why are we materially wealthy and socially poor? And my book will look at why we're socially poor, especially in many of our neighborhoods, not all of our neighborhoods. And that's what I will work on. And that book should come out, um, I believe, the middle of next year. It's called The Fragile Neighborhood. Thank you for asking. All right. I I, I'm looking forward to that book. I'll definitely read it and hopefully we can talk about it again on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, once again, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me and good luck. Take care, everyone. All right, guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. Uh, so I'm going to leave the link to uh, Dr. Kaplan's books. Uh, he's already written three books before this also. So I'm going to leave the Amazon links to all the three books. I'm going to leave the link to his website and to the blogs he's written in the Heterodox Academy. I will request all of you to go and check all of them out. Please buy his previous books too. Uh, I'll, I'll invite Dr. Kaplan again once the new books are out. If you like what I'm doing over here, please subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave a comment, become a member, subscribe on Patreon. You know the drill. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Namaste. Goodbye.